Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and this morning we're going to consider verses 12 to the end of the chapter. If you need a Bible to follow along, just lift your hand up if you don't have the Bible on your device. Because we all know, teenagers and young people, that the Bible, your phones in church are only to be used for what reason? All right, let's remember that, young people and kiddos, and maybe some adults who are addicted to screen time. All right, the Bible only in front of our eyes for the next, oh, I don't know, hour and a half, maybe? <laughs> That'd be good. Amen. Pastor Steve had to say that. He's employed here. He's, he's, he's paid to amen, those things. Anyways. Um, the scripture only, right? Uh, so many distractions uh, during the course of a worship service. That uh, Even those out in the lobby who are under the sound of my voice, because I know you're hearing me through the speakers, don't be distracted. The conversation you're currently having can stop and continue after church. For those of you who are guests, I'm not always this intimidating every Sunday morning. We, um, we need to focus on a passage of Scripture here that's, um, if we get it, uh, this is one of those texts that can change the, the course of a church. Okay? I know the Bible is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, every line, every word of every passage. I know that. And any, any sermon can change us for a lifetime. This one, for where our church is right now, I think we're poised. By God's grace, you're doing such a tremendous job in relationship to this text, individually and corporately. I think, when I, when I think of this text, I think, wow, Lord, our people are getting this. And I praise God when I'm studying through it these last few weeks. And then I think of Paul's words in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 that you would just increase more and more. I think we're at that point now where we're, we're ready to go do this together. Uh, most significantly, uh, we're ready to move from good to better, and now we're ready to move from better to best in relationship to what it means to live life with an eternal purpose. So focus with me, if you will, on these words um, carefully, focus on this text, because we're going to read all these verses together. We're going to go back and break up this text a little bit to help us understand, and then we'll apply it as we preach through it, okay? Beginning in verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly, for what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? And I saw that wisdom excels folly, as light excels darkness. Now remember the context here, folks. He's talking about just mere good human wisdom. Good horse sense. As God's image bearer, even people that don't know Jesus can have good common sense. As God's image bearers who know Christ... He gives us the ability to have good common sense and understand the wisdom of God, not just the, the wisdom of man. But Solomon here, the teacher, the king, is telling us that mere good human horse sense is better than folly. 
Remember, he writes, having gotten right with the Lord. He's describing here in chapters 1 and 2 and other parts of the book, his life not walking with the Lord. But now he's right with the Lord, and he's saying this was his life not walking with the Lord. He had some spurts of good human wisdom that got him a long way. And as we read last week, he dabbled way too much in folly with alcohol and women, okay, among other things. And he says, look, if I'm going to be a wise man, I'm going to choose wisdom over folly. I've tried it all. I'm going to choose wisdom over folly. But what does he say? Verse 13 Verse 14, excuse me. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Basically, he's just describing what he just said in verse 13. And yet I know that one fate befalls them what? They're both going to die. Okay? So hang on with me here as we continue to read. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool... It will also befall me. So again, verse 15 explains what he just said in verse 14. Why then have I been extremely wise? Would it have benefit me to be the smartest man in the world with all the things and stuff in the world a man could have? Okay. So I said to myself, this too is vanity. Now... The word for vanity here is different than folly, and it's different within the context of useless. Within the immediate context of this verse, he's saying wisdom is good. Mere human wisdom, as God's image bearers, can be good, but it's still temporary. It's good for the here and now. So he's not decrying it. He's just saying it's not meaningless. It's just temporary. Verse 16. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life. Isn't that interesting? And this word hate, if you understand the Hebrew tongue, would be uh, not, uh, I wish I would have never lived it, hate. But it's a, it's a, it's, it's a word of, of comparison. Really, I lived a lot of my life walking, with, walking without God with good wisdom and, and, and the so what was kind of, uh, the value of the so what was temporary and, and, and it wasn't eternal. He goes on to say in verse 17, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me because I found out it was temporary. It was great, but it was, had, a, had a shelf life because everything is futility and striving after the wind. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Seems meaningless to me. And he's right. (laughs) Living without eternal purpose, he's right. Therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor, which we studied last week, and it was a lot, wasn't it? 
for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get in all of his labor and all of his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all of his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. Modern psychologists would give that verse 23 a label and a medication. Living life for temporary purposes leads us all to this, whether we do it wisely or foolishly. So what's the conclusion, verse 24? And this is, as we gave the overview of the book uh, back in February, this is the conclusion of the first section of the book of Ecclesiastes, one of four sections we outlined for you. He says, there's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also have I seen is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? See the temporal and now the eternal value? Anything that's good, let alone evil, is meaningless if it's done without God. For to a person who is good in his sight, he hath given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. Now he turns the tables. For a righteous, godly man who does a lot of work, he says earlier, maybe if it's just mere human wisdom, we're going to give this all over to a fool and he's going to ruin everything I, I, I created. But now he says, even for the fool, even for the unrighteous man who maybe even walks with good horse sense, I'm going to give all my labor and I'm going to die and a Christian might take it over. And he might use all of those dollars, all that profit to promote his Jesus or his God. And that's equally grievous to the unbeliever. Are you with me? So either way, it's kind of like if everything's done for just mere temporary value, then it's, it's meaningless. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. When I was a little boy, I went to camp, and there was a camp evangelist who began a sermon like this. There's only two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. I will tell you that you've heard that probably a thousand times over yourself if you've been around Bible Christianity very long. But after we're born again, those two options still remain. Solomon knew that. As a born-again man, he walked away from God, and he chose to please himself. He did so through folly and through walking in good common horse sense, good wisdom. And he found they're both meaningless. But what does this statement mean to us? C.T. Studd wrote a poem. He's also written a hymn. And I'll conclude with the lyric of that hymn in our sermon this morning. But in a poem he said, There's only one life and it will soon be passed. And only what's done for, finish, finish it with me, Christ will last. And that's true, isn't it? Now, I want you to understand this. That that's, not, that's a statement that's not only true for a pastor or for a spiritual leader. This is what I said at the beginning could crescendo our church into 
doing great things for God. It's applicable to every soul in the room that says they're a believer. Only what's done for Christ will last. So a lot of good things that God's created us to enjoy, and we're told in this text to enjoy those things to be sure. But again, why are we enjoying those things? And you say, I am enjoying those things because God's given them to me to do. I'm walking with him, and I want to please him. I want to obey him with my life. And I would say, good. And, and what's the ultimate result of obeying Christ with doing these good things and honoring him while you're enjoying these good things? Why? Why? If we cannot answer the question, why, the eternal value of the why then what you're doing is really saying you're walking with God, but you're doing so without him. If you cannot answer the question of the eternal why as to your existence and to your being part of the family of God, you're pretty much going through the Christian life by just going through the motions. How or will or is your life counting for eternity? Our church mission statement is pretty simple. We exist to glorify God by doing what? Let's say it together, evangelizing the lost and equipping the saints with the goal of Christ's likeness. I think a lot of people have a tendency to really enjoy three of those phrases out of the four. We don't mind glorifying God by equipping the saints with the goal of Christ's likeness. But if we're, that's not living your eternal why. Are you with me? This is what Solomon's saying. He said, I don't see our mission statement in this text. Listen, friends. He had no problem with wisdom. He had no problem with God at this point. But what he's saying is whether you're a fool or whether you're wise, when you die, both what? It's over. Only what's done for Christ will last. So if you're with me, what's the only thing that's done for Christ through your life and my life that's going to last? We exist to glorify God by evangelizing the lost. We've told you many, many times, the only thing that you can take with you from this earth are souls. That's it. And the only thing that you can leave behind of eternal value is preparing somebody else to understand that the only thing they're going to take from this earth when they die are souls. And in our American culture, it takes church people like us much discipline, much mental discipline, consideration to, to wrestle all of our lives and all of our things in our lives and our opportunities in our lives and, and, and shed the distractions in our lives to, 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 to daily remember through prayer first and then through mental discipline second and the study of God's word to getting up and not going through even Bible-believing conservative Christian motions of life. Everyone living so when you do die like the fool's going to die, you can say what? 
I have a treasure. I have a treasure that's eternal. That God's given me the privilege of building up. And it's souls. Okay? So hang on with me here as we go through the text together. Have you ever come to a fork in the road on your way to an important event? And this event you obviously cannot be late for. And this is before the time where you had a digital footprint before your eyes, not only visually telling you, but audibly, audibly scolding you, right? You turn the wrong way or don't, or rerouting, right? Remember those days when you had to actually write down directions? And remember coming to that fork in the road, like I often did. I remember one time, you know, you came to a fork in the road. It wasn't a right-hand turn or a left-hand turn. It was a fork, right? And I was supposed to go either northeast or, or northwest. So it's kind of like this, right? And I couldn't discern my own writing. I got the N right, right? But my W's and my E's have a tendency to look, right? And you know you can't make a wrong choice. If you're wrong choice and you're a pastor and you're going to a wedding that you're officiating, <laughs> you can't make that wrong choice. And when you do, and you realize that you do, but you don't have a device reminding you that you have, and you end up 20 minutes late to a wedding that you're officiating, it's not good. <laughs> okay, it's not good. It really reminds you how you have to work on your penmanship. Right? And be careful with, with detailed directions. All right? So, so this morning, I think I want us all to consider this temporal or eternal fork in the road. We all have to do this. Are you going to do something for Christ that's going to last? Are you currently developing your own soul character to do something for Christ that's going to last? This was the challenge of Solomon's mind and heart. The sad part about it is, he's writing this at the end of his life. And he's writing with much regret, but with great warning to us. And I guarantee you, it's a guttural grief in his soul to think that I have more concubines to my name than I do souls to take with me for eternity. It doesn't matter whether it's women or dollars or children or homes that your children get to enjoy. Cars, degrees, right? Whatever you value. Remember last week's sermon? I would be happy if I had what? Okay? For the believer... And it really is hard to comprehend this in a culture that has been saturated and lavished with so many good things. And we're expected to enjoy those good things without being distracted from our eternal why. And, and, and Solomon's just saying, all right, here we go. <laughs> Don't live with regret. And I know you're not. I told you our congregation's really moving in a great direction with this, but it's time now to go from better to best. So, Solomon's reviewing having missed or made the wrong turn in the fork of his life. But now what's precisely detailed for us in this text 
We've got to galvanize this in our own hearts and minds as a church as we, as we move forward. So, will we be living our life pleasing God or pleasing self? And I, and I, I don't want to be too burdensome on this issue, but my friends, what does it profit your life if you're saved, you read your Bible every day, you love your wife, you love your kids, you do your job at work, you worship three to four times a week, you maybe even worship with integrity and happen to do what a lot of believers don't do, and that's give to your local church sacrificially and joyfully. You're going through all the motions, dotting your I's, crossing your T's. You stand for all the doctrine of God's word, and you repudiate and you reject error, doctrinal error. What does it profit your life when you stand before Jesus and he looks at you and says, so what? So what? Challenging, isn't it? Why did Jesus speak to the angel of the church of Ephesus? And he says, you worship well, you reject error, you promote truth, all of it. You go to church regularly, you worship with integrity, you dot all your I's and you cross all your T's, you have solid families and marriages in your, home, in, in your church, You've done everything right, but I have one thing, just one thing against you. You forgot to do the first works. And this is the church that Paul planted in Acts 19. This is the church that Timothy began to pastor at 38 years old. Now, we're almost 55, 60 years later when Jesus speaks to the pastor of the church of Ephesus and he says, unless you repent. He's going to do what? He's going to remove the lampstand. Your church, though you preach this whole book, is of no eternal value. So what? The devil licks his chops with great satisfaction when he finds a church that preaches this whole book and its peoples are, in the, peoples are in the seats, eating it up, eating them up, memorizing it, living it in their daily lives with no eternal purpose. The devil's like, I'm good. They're going to be out of existence in their own time. I'm on to the next place that's interested in souls. Are you with me? All right. Good. So, What's verse 12 to 17 tell us? Okay? Wisdom does exceed folly. Mere human wisdom without God still is better than living life in immorality and drunkenness. Still better. Would you agree? Certainly it is. Certainly it is. But if you live your life with God's, without God's wisdom and no eternal purpose then you're going to be disappointed. 
So verse 12 teaches us this. Try not to be surprised when you realize your best moves and decisions in life, one author said, will never outdo someone who's already wiser than you anyway. That's what we read in verse 12. Several things, verses 13 to 16, teach us. Please try to remember that your best efforts in life, merely using man's wisdom, will still only widen and deepen your disappointment when you're ready to breathe your last. Even believers can die in grief when they realize their life had very little to no eternal value to it. Verse 13 teaches us that, that wisdom does exceed folly. And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. There is some smart things that we've done and some bad things that Solomon says that he's done. But when neither has eternal value and mine, both have a shelf life. Verses 14 to 15 teach us what? Both the wise and the fool have the same end. We read that. So Solomon's spiritual wisdom would have us ponder what eternal value will our life have after we're gone. So when then have I truly been extremely wise if I've not lived life with eternity in view? Verse 16. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with a fool inasmuch as in the coming days both will be forgotten and how will the wise man and the fool alike die? If you go just a mile and a half away from here and go up to Willoughby Cemetery, you're going to find gravestones of born-again people. Two of those are Bob Potter and Ed Teske. And if you look at their gravestones, you're going to see etched in those gravestones some Bible verses and the nature of those Bible verses the nature of those verses are eternity in nature why did I live my life and you can go multiple rows over and walk through that cemetery and, and the epitaphs on these gravestones pretty much are the pledge of allegiance as to why those people live their lives and not all of those epitaphs are Pledge of Allegiance to wrong things. You'll go over four rows, and you'll see a guy who is remembered for being a Harley-Davidson owner. And they'll be inscripted, probably paid 10, 12 grand for the stone, and it's him, right? Sitting on his Harley with a big smile on his face. Anything wrong with owning a Harley and enjoying it? No. No. But you walk over to another stone that has John 14, 6 on it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Now I suppose if you used your Harley to drive around with people that are your friends who had Harleys, and you were able to speak to them because they loved you enough, to hear you speak John 14, 6, then I would say you're getting the point of the text. So maybe your tombstone would read John 14, 6, and you would be sitting on your Harley. <laughs> but you're both going to die. Whose life counted? 
past 70 years, three score and 10, the average lifespan of an American person. As we continue on, we're taught in verses 17 and 18 that living with mere human wisdom and even doing much temporal good will only leave you in more disappointment in yourself for not living your life to influence others for eternity. The work done under the sun, both of the wise and of the fool, leads them to great disappointment. We already told you what the language means here. I hated life. Everything in life was futility and striving after the wind. Verse 18 would tell us that even your most profound accomplishments at work will be left behind and probably only outdone or undone by who's up next. For many folks, this happens early after retirement. Some are elated that they set the table for advancement for the next generation within their corporation or their industry. Some don't care. <laughs> They're just on to retirement to get what they deserve out of life. And some retire and actually die bitter because others quickly undo or outdo them shortly after they've left their profession. Regardless of your response of those three, none of those three have any eternal value to them. None of them. What has eternal value? Who'd you leave behind at work that knew you knew Jesus? And understood the gospel. At least one soul, maybe. We understand all these people are going to get saved. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians that we're going to either be a saver of life unto life or death unto death. But have you been a saver at all? Is anyone thinking about their eternity because of the way you lived your life in Christ and spoke of him? Neighborhood, work, wherever. Verses 19 to 22 that we've read. What if everything that I've done with wisdom is undone by those who come after me? Well, as the text says, who knows whether he'll be a wise or a fool. So whether someone carries out your legacy or whether it's, he exists to undo it, what does it matter? I mean, truly, folks, in studying this this week, I, I thought of yeah, what about the next pastor of, of, of grace? You know, you know, pastors go through this too. This is why it's hard for pastors to hand over their pulpit to people. Here it's going to be easy because we got great guys. But even a great heart can go bad. Right? So I could hold on to this pulpit until my dying breath. Let's say I live to 87. Dude, could you imagine me pastoring here for 37 more years? He's like, no, bring someone else. Bring someone else. I wouldn't blame you. The next man should be up. We're strong. But a lot of guys hang on that long with no replacement. Why? There's no one that they feel they can trust or they're worried about what's going to happen. Well, my friends, that's sinful worry for a pastor. I'm not going to live my life under that kind of stress and be medicated for it. I'm going to go on, and I'm going to have a ball. If the next guy screws up when I'm done, that's life. 
It's all temporary anyway. So what really matters? How did Pastor Tim, as he draws the circle around himself, shepherd Grace Church unto eternal things while he was there? That's all I'm responsible for. What happens when I'm done? Look, that's on you. And I'm not going to stress over it. So we even go through that. I'm not playing my fiddle. It's just, just life. I'm not, re I'm not resigning next week. Don't. <laughs> Every time I use these analogies, you know, I get about 15 emails. So Pastor Tim, are you? No, I haven't bought a house in Naples, and I haven't, I haven't, I couldn't anyway. But no, I'm not, I don't want to go anywhere. Um, I don't have any, I'm not been stricken with anything yet that would take my life away. But poison ivy's gone even, so. I'm back to shaking and hugging today. Some of you, I came up to shake your hand, and you're like, eh. <laughs> it's unclean. Yeah. All right. Verse 22 is, is clear that we read. For what does a man get with all of his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? And when you look at it with mere human wisdom, that's a great rhetorical question. What does he get? He gets exactly what he's invested in. Something that's temporary. Whether wise or fool. He gets back a return on what he's invested in. So when death separates us from our accomplishments, then what? Then what? You know, last night we had a graduation party for a third kid in my home that's graduated from high school. And boy, what a great time it was. If you're able to come, thank you. I know all the invitations have been on the screens for about a month for all these fellowships and morning services so you all would come if you were able to come we had just had a great time and um but I, but i'll tell you walking around my little quarter acre of real estate on this globe last night um this text was on my mind because been meditating on it all week and i'm looking at a lot of really good things in people but this is on my mind. And I don't think it should be on my mind just because of what I do for a living. I think this is the point of the text. I had money to rent a tent and chairs. I had money to pay a friend to come and make food. I had a garage that I was able to have the strength to clean to set the food in without being infected or affected by things or critters or whatever, right? I have an absolutely drop-dead gorgeous wife with a lot of energy that just loves to serve people, right? We actually have friends that came. Christian friends and Friends that don't know Jesus yet. 
And those that did not know Jesus actually, in the end of the day, outnumbered those who did. And I'm still walking around. I'm, I'm analyzing and I'm seeing these things and I'm still saying in my mind, so what? I got a kid that's going to college. College is paid for. And he's actually playing a sport that he loves. And he actually got a, over a 3.0. It's a 3 point something in his first semester as a college kid. That's all right. And he's got a lot of people that love him. That's good. And I'm still saying to myself, so what? His career could be over next week. Then so what? He may not even finish college. Because he may be maimed in a car accident. Then so what? I keep walking around the property. You say, well, you're an awful pessimist, Pastor Tim. You, are you spooked by yourself often like this? It's, I'm just walking around. So what? Well, at least the people there that need Jesus are seeing people that have Jesus, and so they're seeing a difference. And that's good, right? But then I say to myself, so what? This morning, my wife and I are in the car on the way to church, and we're analyzing our guest last night. And she says, you know, so-and-so, I kept watching her last night. And she just seemed so conflicted. Why do you think she... I said, yeah, I noticed the same thing. And I said, you know, you know why I think so, sweetheart? Because she's been around unbelief and belief for so long now, and she realizes that both can do good common sense. And she did. She sat there last night for three and a half hours in the same chair, just observing and watching and that's what she's analyzing. She's saying, these are people that don't go to church, they don't know Jesus, and these are people that do, and they're both doing a lot of good things, and they're doing things good together at a grand party. But I still see a difference. Cuss words still drip off the tongues of those who don't know Jesus. I'm hearing chit-chat about, oh, this is the Christian party that doesn't have alcohol. But they're both still doing good things together. And they see the difference. And then I say to myself, even after that unique analysis, I say to myself, what? So what? So what? Let's just leave it there and... Wash your hands and say, hey, at least we invited them. At least they came. At least they saw. At least they made the analysis. So what? It's all good. God can use it all. But it's got to be unto what end? Are you with me? Why? Why? So-and-so? Let's have dinner. Can I really, can I just take some time to just really clarify for you who changed my life? Do you mind? You know I love you. Can we just sit down and talk about Jesus together? Because I knew I need him and every man needs him. Now we're getting closer. Then you got to actually have the dinner. I'm going through this last night with my kids' coaches and my kids' friends. And I'm asking myself, so what? Why? So what? Why? So what? Why? 
Because if I die without getting to that so what, then I really died the same way they do. I'll be in heaven because I knew Jesus, but the end result of my eternal value is what? We both die the same way. So how does Solomon conclude as we close? So, verse 24, it looks almost paradoxical, but it's not. So what he's saying, have your grad parties, eat your pizza, drink your mocha punch, make sure you have some water on ice, get your food truck, backslap your buddies, play some cornhole, go have a ball. That's what verse 24 says, isn't it? Well, you know, in our vernacular. There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. All this is from our labor. You studied, so you graduated. You work, so you can pay for a tent and some pizza. This also I have seen is from who? The hand of God. You cannot call that which is enjoyed in mere good human horse sense bad. You can't. And he's telling us to go do it. In verse 25, he gives us the eternal why for who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him. Now, I guess I could have chose, we all could have chosen last night to sit down and do all those things without having him in mind. But what does it mean to have him in mind? If you want to know again what it means to have him in mind, you have to know his mind as to why he sent himself in the form of his son. Are you with me? God sent himself in the form of his son. Is Jesus God? Yes. So was Jesus' mission God's mission? When man fell into sin, God crafted the rest of history to be focused back to his son, even in our brokenness, unto his glory. Okay? So everything we do... Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Well, who, Hebrews chapter 1, is the glory of God? Jesus. It all comes back to him. And why did he come? Did he come merely so you could be saved and obey God? Yeah, if you understand the full of his commandments. Okay. I think, I don't want to beat a dead horse here. I just want all of us to get this. You have to live unto eternal purposes. And in our dispensation in the local church, that means you are a vessel fit for the master's gospel use. There is someone, there is someone that God's providentially placed in your neighborhood. Seth and Emily just moved into a new home. I know their hearts. I know their hearts. It's posted last night. God's got us here for a reason. And I know them. I know they're thinking eternal reason. God chose that home for them. Why? Eternal value. Some of you just landed a new job. You said, well, I got on the website, and I looked, and, I, and the recruiter found me, or I found them. Well, that may be true, but why? Did you really get the job, or did God give it to you? And, 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 and who's the why in that environment? There's no reason for us to live if we're not asking that why. There really is no purpose. Who, 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 who? Right? 
Luke 16, write that down. Parable of the unjust steward. Jesus praises the creativity of the unjust steward. Why? He says, if believers would be half as creative as the unjust steward, they would be doing what? They would be taking unrighteous mammon, money, and using it to make friends for eternity. It's all about the why. And Jesus gives the parable to criticize his own people. So you pay money to make pizza and to have incredible cake for people. Why? Make friends for eternity. No matter how, how, whatever angle you look at in life, there's a Bible text within its context that addresses why you're even saved. Okay? And God's grace is the only thing that compels us to think that way. Because I'm telling you what, life's too hard without that grace. All of us are shipwreck without understanding that grace. All of us. Only grace can take us to that point. And I can't explain that because that's supernatural stuff. C.T. Studd also wrote another poem that was actually put to music that you have sung. Only one life to offer Jesus, my Lord and King. Only one tongue to praise thee and of thy mercy sing. Only one heart's devotion, Savior, O oh, may it be consecrated alone to thy matchless glory yielded fully to thee. And the second verse is so profound to what we're talking about this morning. Only this hour, Lord, may it be used for thee. May every passing moment count for eternity. Souls all about are dying, dying in sin and shame. Help me bring them the message of Calvary's redemption in thy glorious name. Are you with me? I know you are. I think we got to increase more and more. Now's the time. Now's the time. Because all of us are going to stand before Jesus at the Bema seat someday just by yourself. And who's going to be in line behind you? That said, yep, Lord Jesus, his life counted for eternity because I'm here. I'm here. I'm not here without them, Lord. And you can humbly bow your head before him and say, Lord, it wasn't me. It was your grace that allowed me to reach her and him and him and her. And he said, now you got it. Now you got it. If that's your heart, you'll be praying about that. That's not your heart. You're probably not praying about that. That God, that's what God wants you to pray about. Just hang tough. And only grace can bring you to that point. And it's hard. And I get it. Okay, it's, I get it. But God's grace is enough. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. And help us to take heart from the, the heart of Solomon, who walking with you gives us this reason to make sure that we live life enjoying temporal things that are good unto eternal purposes. 
help the lives of the souls of Grace Church of Mentor to influence our city for eternity in a loving, gracious, patient, but yet so clear gospel way. In Jesus' name, amen.